as many of our UNT students face unexpected challenges and expenses related to the coronavirus, the new UNT CARES Fund is here to help them persevere. Gifts made to this special fund will meet short-term needs so our students can continue to have long-term success. Visit one.unt.edu slash UNTCares to make a gift today. Your generosity will go a long way in helping UNT students stay safe, healthy, and on track to graduate. You're listening to the Ollie at UNT Alumni Spotlight Series, presented by the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at UNT and the UNT Alumni Association. The Alumni Association is open to all friends of UNT who are interested in serving, supporting, and celebrating the university. To learn more, visit untalumni.com. To learn more about Ollie at UNT, please visit our website, olli.unt.edu. Now let's join our host, Ollie at UNT member, Susan Supak. This is Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas in Denton, Texas, known to most of us as Ollie, in partnership with the UNT Alumni Association. The Ollie at UNT podcast presents the Alumni Spotlight Series featuring exceptional alumni. This month's spotlight falls on Azim Rashid, Senior Vice President and Head of Urban Promotion at Columbia Records. His career spans from Columbia Records to former Senior Vice President with Rock Nation and long tenures at Warner Music Group and Universal Music Group. He is widely known as a sharp promotion executive and a respected figure in the music industry. Azim is also a 1994 graduate from UNT School of Business, studying film, television, and radio. Welcome, Azim. Thank you. Thank you. Nice to be here, Susan. It's terrific to have you here. I uh, have to tell you that I've been looking forward to this because I do not know a lot, though I love music and I know a lot about in front of the scenes, I know very little about behind the scenes. So this is going to be a good interview. You started out in the music industry as a performer with the rap group Nemesis, yes. recording several albums. How did that group form? Well, um, I'm originally from Cleveland, Ohio, just to give you some context and background. I moved to Dallas, Texas when I was 14 and Richardson, which is a suburb of Dallas. And I really didn't have a lot of friends. I was a new kid. I sounded funny. I dressed funny. Uh, and I moved to a predominantly white neighborhood where I was used to be in a predominantly black neighborhood in Ohio. And so music, I was always a fan of music since I was five or six years old. I, I, I tell everyone that my earliest beginnings, I knew that I was gonna be in the music business, just didn't, just didn't know how. Music then became my refuge. So high school, I started DJing and promoting parties with, with a group of friends uh, in the area. Upon graduation, we started a group called Something Fresh, which made a record called Oak Cliff, which is a neighborhood in South Dallas. And it was the first rap record to come out of Dallas on our own independent label. So we were all entrepreneurial minded and we had a production company. We promoted, we marketed and we started a small record company. Uh, that record was a local buzz, probably a kind of a folk record in Texas, specifically among hip hop heads. But the group morphed into a bigger organization called Nemesis. And that became kind of our it were like three DJs. We had producers. We had drum programmers. We had a guitar player, uh, as well as MCs and uh, hype guys. And the group was really big, like 11 of us when we started. 
And we followed the same blueprint we did when we did the Oak Cliff record. We started a different record company because the people we were dealing with before we had kind of parted ways with. We started a new company called Get Off Me Records. Shout out to Snake, Big Al, and, and Casanova, RIP, Big Al. And my friends, uh, Easy Roxy and, and Bumblebee, those guys were the other rappers in the group. And we basically put out an album. It was the first rap record to come out of Dallas, Texas as well. And over the course of about a year, we sold 20,000 records. So you have to imagine back then there were retail stores everywhere. Internet didn't even exist at the time. We're talking about 1989, 1988. And so in order for us to sell our records, we literally have to go from store to store. We finally wound up getting a distribution deal with big state distributors. This is no longer around, but they deal with a lot of independent record labels throughout the whole Southwest. So they cover Texas, Louisiana, Arkansas, Mississippi, etc. And we sold enough records to where, while they were dealing with the big accounts in New York, the Profile Records, the Tommy Boy Records, the Sleeping Bag Records, uh, Warner Brothers, Atlantic, uh, we got their, their attention. And so they brokered a deal for us to get a deal with Profile. And it was ourselves and another guy named Ron C., who's from California. And that was kind of the genesis of how we got big. So we signed a deal with Profile in 1988. We repackaged the album, put it back out on Profile. Uh, using half the album that we made by ourselves and half the album that they asked us to go in and recut because several members had left the group. So we wanted to have some music integrity to it. So so the group, so the record would actually appear with the, with the new formation of the group, which is just myself, uh, Big Al, again, rest in peace, and uh, DJ Snake. And that was it. I mean, it, it was a lot of, you know, driving around Texas, driving around the Southwest, doing shows and, and, YMCA's, recreation centers, armories, uh, some clubs as well. But that was kind of the beginning. That was like 1989. I did a couple albums with the group. Now, mind you, I went to North Texas as a freshman in 86. Didn't finish because I was so enamored with the music business and was happy actually having a little run at it. But I kind of made a, uh, did kind of, I actually made a pledge and a vow to both my mother and my late great aunt that I would finish school. So in between touring and club and working on albums, I would go to Richland Community College, which is part of the Dallas County Community College system. Uh, finally, in 92, we had a basically a, a separation of the group. We couldn't agree ideo- ideologically on where we wanted to be. And so I decided to leave the group. Um, I went solo, actually put out a solo record, didn't do very well, but I rededicated myself to my education. And that's when I went back to North Texas, full throttle, in the spring of 1992. And I basically finished up three years of work in two years. Sounds like some busy years. You had some success, though, with that music. Do you find, as a performer, that you learned lessons that you carried over from what you're doing now? Absolutely. I mean, one, because as a performer, I always tell people, I was adequate. I was average. I was good. We, We sold records. We have a gold album, and we sold probably collectively over a million units, which is a lot to be said. But I always was the guy behind the scenes. And so being in that group and being both a front man slash spokesperson, as well as handling a lot of the behind the scenes business with our personal manager, a guy named Richard McDonald, as well as our formal manager, a big industry legend, a guy named Ernie Phillips. You know, I was able to learn a lot from all those guys. So I was able to kind of do both things. And really, when I decided to make the transition to go back to school, I knew that I wanted to get on the business side and Ernie and, and, and actually Corey Robbins, who was the president of Profile at the time, 
they both encouraged me that they told me that I had a shot if I decided to do it. What made you decide to do that? I mean, what were the deciding factors behind you deciding, I don't want to be a performer, I want to be on the business side? It was just, I'm a person who really, when I'm done with something, I'm done with it. And I really felt like at that point, being in the group was, was what was most comfortable to me. That configuration of the group was probably the last piece. The guys who I started with had, had quit, had long since quit the group. So one, the guys who I felt most comfortable with before me had left the group. And then again, ideologically, we weren't on the same page moving forward. I'd have said, you know, I'll try a solo project. And if it doesn't work, then that's my sign from God that I need to be doing something else. So literally profile, which I think was kind of a, kind of a backhanded trick to get me to stay in the group. They said, listen, you can put up your own money and you can make your own record. And if we like it, we'll sign you to a solo deal, but we really want you to stay in the group. And, you know, flash forward, they didn't accept my album. Um, I didn't want to go back to the group. I think at that point we were kind of feuding. They didn't want me back in the group either. And so I put the record out uh, with another group of friends on the independent label and it literally did nothing. And so that to me, that was my sign to go ahead and, and move forward to the next phase of my life. You just knew the timing was good. Yeah, definitely. Rumor has it that you were the entertainment director of UNT's University Program Council, and sounds like you were in the industry all along. Uh, I also have to divulge the fact to the listeners that you were UNT's 1994 homecoming king. Yes, yes. <laughs> so how did you get involved with UPC, the, the University Program Council, and what kind of events did you plan at your time at UNT? Well, one, I want, and you'll hear me reference a lot of people. I like to give, give people their flowers, and hopefully they'll hear these things while we're talking. So uh, Dr. Greg Sawyer, who I actually just set up a meeting with today, he was the head of the Dean of Students. And um, Alton Scales, who was, I forget his title, but he was like student affairs kind of director. They both were encouraging me that now I was back on campus uh, full time, that I really should go through school and not let it go through me. Those were their words. They were saying, listen, get involved, do as much as you can. Like you, if you want to be here, get the most out of the experience because you're only going to get this one shot. And again, at this point, I was a little older. I was like 22 going back to school. And so the UPC just kind of felt like a way for me to be involved with the music business of school. Now, mind you, my major was radio and film. I started out pre-med. We'll talk about that later. Uh, wound up going to radio and film. But what I found was that I didn't really, you know, no disrespect to the university, but I didn't find the program to be progressive enough for me because I had already known about radio and I'd done these things. And then speaking to people I knew who worked in radio, they were like, listen, you don't need a radio and film degree to do radio. Like, just come to the station. Like, that's kind of how it was. And so being a part of UPC was a, a, a way for me to learn how to run a business at a, at a you know, college is a multi-million dollar enterprise um, and be a part of the, the active student community. So uh, getting that entertainment director gig was, was like the highlight of my junior year, senior year. And I was really excited to do it. And we did some really good things. We brought KRS-One, who was from Boogie Down Productions, who was a big, big, big lecturer, as well as a hip hop artist to the school and a couple other artists we brought to the school to do some events. So it definitely helped me, again, once again, solidify the fact that I wanted to be behind the scenes on a professional level. Right, what a great learning experience. Now your role is a music promotion executive. What does that entail? The short answer is if you listen to the radio, if you watch television, if you go to concerts and you see artists doing anything that 
involves fan engagement, that's what my job is. Promotion is part of the marketing mix for all you marketing majors. But the music business, because radio is such a huge, huge, huge driver for our enterprise, takes promotion out of the marketing mix and gives it its own its own department. And so whether there's, I think, about 1,500 commercially licensed radio stations across the country, then you can also add in the community stations and college stations and non-coms, et cetera. So over 2,000 radio stations across the country that service everything from country to pop to folk, obviously hip-hop and R&B, news, talk, sports, whatever. And so someone needs to talk to these people. So those are my constituents. Those are my clients. And so people who do what I do um, across all different formats, our primary job is to talk to these people and get them to play our music. It sounds very busy. It sounds like you have a it very is. busy job. It's a sales job. I mean, if you think- it must be changing all the time. I mean, you have to stay on top of things, right? Yeah. I mean, te- listen, technology is, is so, I think for me, just from being a music lover, so say I started this when I was 17. So from the time I came into the business, there have been four different iterations of music delivery. Vinyl was big. Actually, when I was growing up, listening to eight-track tapes in my parents' car, right? Then vinyl, which was always around, became the big medium, especially for DJs. Then cassette tapes, then CDs, then MP3s, and now just straight streaming files. So I've been a part of all that. And to be able to be around this long and to watch all these iterations of music delivery and to have success has been a true blessing for me as well. It's pretty incredible. You work with some of the biggest names in the business. Have you learned any notable lessons from them? Yes. Um, the cream always rises to the top. Hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work. And ultimately, the person you are will be revealed once you have the spotlight on you. You know, they say that, um, what do they say about character? They say adversity doesn't give you character, it reveals it. And the same thing happens in our business. You know, people who are mean-spirited and up to no good and just not good people, when they get a little bit of money and a little bit of fame, they become more of those people. And then people who are altruistic and have the um, the service mentality and want to help their communities and, and just be good people, when they have opportunities, they have success, they do more of that as well. Yeah, it's nice doing what I'm doing right now with the Alumni Spotlight because there are people like you who have really made it big in the business. And and it, it's really terrific to see those people that are the kind of people you're talking about because they come back yes. and they help the community. They don't forget. You know, it's like, yeah, you, you know, you, you help the community, you help people. So that's that's awesome. I can only imagine the changes in the industry that we're talking about now with COVID and, and the unprecedented evolution of the social media. Do you see anything happening? You mentioned some before we talked about it, but do you see anything on the horizon perhaps? I think when it comes to music consumption, we're kind of where we're going to be. I mean, it really gets no easier access than streaming files. I personally believe there's there's a lot of opportunity uh, as far as the way we consume music, especially across different economic barriers. I always talk about there being kind of a uh, computer drought or, or a digital drought within lower income communities. And that has been something we've seen through homeschooling, right? When COVID hit and everybody had to stay at home and go to school, didn't matter what community we from, poor people didn't have access to computers. And so those communities had issues helping their students learn throughout this time. And I say the same thing with our music. You know, everybody can afford uh, a 9 dollars 
account with one of the big digital service providers. You know, if people can't afford computers, how can they afford luxury items like music? And music is a luxury um, if you have to pay for it. You know, radio is free. And a lot of conversation has been going around for years about, well, radio is dying and, you know, radio is not going to be around. I think that it's, I don't think it's true. I think, one, it's a free medium. And if anything's free, it's going to find a way to exist. And it's government subsidized as well. But also, too, I think the fact that radio, there are like 250 million people listen to the radio at least once a week. And music is discovered on radio more times than not. I think the DSPs, you know, all the, all the internet providers, they provide a place for true music fans to be the early adopters, to kind of fan the flames and let us know what, what we think is going to be relevant. And then they push it out and then becomes mainstream. So whether it's radio, whether it's television, even touring, that's where the, the big money's made and that's where people become famous. The other thing I think that's really good with social media specifically that's going to continue to morph and change, it is an opportunity for people to create opportunities for themselves. Again, when I got started in the business, if you didn't know someone, if you couldn't you know, pick up the back of an album cover or open a CD jacket and have the gumption like I did to write every single record label, to stalk every single person you saw that was affiliated with an artist to get an opportunity, you know, you, you didn't make it. And, and really, that was one of my drivers growing up. People like, well, you're not, that's impossible. Only certain people can do that. Or you have to live in New York or LA for that to happen. So for me to make it out of Dallas, Texas, from North Texas was a blessing. But I think it was because I just had that drive. But now, if you have access to a computer, access to a uh, internet service, you can figure out how to get in this business. So I think that's something that's, that's really it's really good. And it makes it more competitive. You know, like 50,000 records gets uploaded to all the digital service providers every day. Wow. So when you talk about listening to your favorite radio station or even looking, listen to your favorite playlist on one of those service providers, again, the top 50 songs are the ones that they play. The top 40 records are the ones you're on the radio. If you're looking at The Voice or you're watching one of these music talent shows, they only have 10 contestants. So if you think about all the people that are trying to get into our business, it's a huge net. It's like sports. You know, once once sports, domestic sports went global, you know, basketball, football, baseball specifically, once those things went global, it wasn't just about being the best high school player at, you know, Caltech. It became being the best ball player in the world in order to get a contract. And I think music is the same way. With all of the concerts that went on Zoom and, and on the computer, as you say, with COVID, mm -hmm. uh, do you think that's going to change things? Is that kind of along the lines of what you're talking about now? Because people have sort of shifted. I don't know. Maybe they'll shift back. I mean, that was my, I actually, my question I was going to ask was, when do you foresee the tours and the concerts happening again? I miss them. But then I'm thinking, well, you know, people, they, they get kind of changed a lot of, we're Zooming and we're doing all kinds of meetings on, on uh, Zoom and, and Zencaster and whatever. And so things, I don't know if it'll ever go back the same, or maybe people will just be like, okay, this is done now. We'll go back to the same. What do you think? Well, things are hybrid. Again, you, if you think about it, every concert doesn't go to every city, right? And so, and, and also, too, streaming uh, or live streaming concerts or even pay-per-view is, is a big thing. I have an artist next week who's doing a pay-per-view concert for his album release that comes out on Friday. I'm part of the Recording Academy, aka the Grammys, uh, voting member. 
And we had a call today because with the advocacy board, we're going to the government saying, listen, there's there's money available for all these out-of-work musicians and techies, et cetera. We need to help these people, right? So I think the live experience is going to come back because just like music is, is something that, that touches everyone, live music is a driver. So I think that the two will coexist. I anticipate just from the conversations I've been having and what I've been reading and watching that next year, 2022, will be the year where things get, quote unquote, back to normal. And I don't think it'll be normal as, as we knew them previous to COVID, but I think there will be protocols and there will be a normalcy that people, whether it's masking, whether it's you know limited venue, maybe an artist plays five shows versus two in a marketplace so they can hit that capacity number they want to hit. Maybe there's there'll be more club shows versus big arena shows so you can control the amount of people in the venues. But I definitely think that the live business is going to come back like gangbusters. I hope it does. I do too. I know personally, I, I'm just going to go to concerts just to have something to do. Like, yeah. I can't wait to get back out. Well, there's something about a concert. There's that energy. It's just really hard to capture that energy yeah. in a concert. But but you can enjoy good music however you listen to it. But there yeah. is certainly something about a concert. So how does a young musician turn themselves into a wise investment for a recording company? Say for somebody like you. How do they market themselves? I get asked that question a lot. There's there's two things that I do, and it's funny. Uh, for a couple of my friends who I do often do panels with, they're listening. They call me the dream killer. And here here's my deal: music is is like art. It looks and sounds different to everybody, right? And the beauty of our business is that if you can get enough people in a room or to to cast their dollar votes to validate your musicality, then you can be a star or you can make a living. I only like to use the term be a star. You can make a living. So for me, first of all, is understanding, recognizing talent. I'm a great example of that. I understood that although I was a good artist, I wasn't a great artist. And I also believe that if you're going to do something, be great at it. I was a good artist. I've been a great executive. God bless. I've had an incredible career and hopefully I'll continue for a few more years. But I think that you have to recognize your place in the sun. So if you're not musically inclined, if you don't play an instrument, if you don't have a great vocal, what is your contribution to the business? And so that's the first thing, recognize your talent. Now, if you do fall on the performance side and you can actually play or you can actually sing or write, then you need to, that, that's your job. And you need to treat it like a job. It's not a hobby, it's a job. It's an opportunity for you because once you do get into the business full time, you're gonna have a dedicated team of people whose job is to help you do your job to the best of your ability. And so I think that you have to practice, you have to learn how to read music. I mean, I learned when I was in high school, I was in the choir, but I think you should learn as much about music as you can. The other thing I think is that you have to have a look and a sound and a purpose. I think being authentic. A lot of people make records or make music just to capture an audience and it's totally oblivious to who they are. I'm sure you've heard these stories before. Well. The record label made me make these kind of music. No, they didn't. You did a record or you did a project that sounded and felt like this. And then when you came to the label, they expected more of that. And you were like, well, that's not really who I am. So I think authenticity will do you a world of good in terms of being who you are. It may take longer, but if you're authentic through and through, then you have a probably a more rewarding career. The last piece of this is for me, and this is something I always say, this is where the dream killing comes in is that do you want to be rich and famous or do you want to make a living? 
for those of us who work in our industry, Texas is the fourth biggest music economy in the nation mm -hmm. uh, behind New York, LA, and Nashville. But there's so many things you can do. Again, my job, promotion executive, right? People don't know what that is, but my job is to help facilitate bringing people into the business and there can be more, be more promotion people. There are so many jobs that you can do that are behind the mic versus being a performer. And so you need to figure out what you can do on that level as well. So if you want to just make a living and be around the music, there's so many things you can do. You want to be rich and famous. That's a bigger kind of <laughs> bigger kind of dream. And it takes a lot more. The biggest thing that it takes is luck to be rich and famous in our business. You know, if you want to make a living, there's plenty of jobs. Well, you mentioned what a challenge it was for you when you first started out coming from Dallas at that time. And I know New York, L.A., they're big music meccas, Nashville. Does it matter now as the way the world is now? Does it matter where you're coming from? I don't think so. Again, going back to where we talked about the Internet and just the opportunity with technology. Obviously, the marketing hubs are New York and L.A. Songwriting is huge in Nashville. So there are places to be seen and heard for certain things. But generally speaking, you know, I'm a believer of owning your neighborhood, owning your backyard. You know, if you can't get the people in your own town to believe that you are a star, how are you going to get two biggest cities in the world to make you believe you're a star? So I really think that all music, just like politics, is local. Mm -hmm. And I think they all have the opportunity to become global. And that's, that goes back to your level of expectation. I, I look at the different formats and different genres of music and the different levels of success, kind of like a day job or kind of like being at home. I, t I tell people all the time when we talk about having, like if, if you do hip hop or if you just do rock and roll, if you do alternative, that's where you live. You're a hip hop artist and it's great. You might make a song that, that goes global and now you're popular, top 40 pop music, right? And that's a good place to be. But you're not going to be there forever because that's just not sustainable because there's going to be somebody else coming behind you. But if you stay authentic to who you are as an artist, you can always go back to your roots of being a rock and roll artist or being an alternative artist or being a hip hop artist. So I think that those things are important about in terms of how you manifest being successful. So you can do that in your own backyard. You can do that right there in Denton. You can do it in Dallas. You can do it in Detroit, and you can do it in Memphis. And, and it's funny when I do panels and we always speak to the aspiring musicians in the room, they all said the same story. Well, nobody from this city is, is supporting these artists. I hear that in New York. Nobody in this city is supporting these artists. I hear that in Los Angeles. Nobody in this city is supporting these artists. I hear it in Nashville. I hear it in Chicago. I hear it in Miami. Now, all these places I just mentioned have big music scenes. So it, it's really about people wanting to take the easy path. Um, I've always said that every overnight, I didn't say it, I didn't make it up, but I always you know, regurgitate it, that every overnight success is 10 years in the making. And people don't want to do their 10 years. You know, like in, in, in Malcolm Gladwell's book, The Outlier, nobody wants to give their 10,000 hours, yeah. you know, Put in your 10,000 hours and then you might see some success. It could happen sooner, but you have to be willing and you have to have the mindset that I'm willing to go that far to get it done. Because if you want to be a doctor or a lawyer, you got to do six, seven, eight years of school, right? If you want to be an engineer, you got to do five, six, seven years of school. So anything that, that requires 
a big payoff in the end requires a big investment in the beginning. And I think people just have to be, be willing to make that investment. Do you usually work with existing artists? Or are you looking for new people? I work with usually existing artists. And then we have a, what's called an a department, artists and repertoire, whose job is to find the new artists. And once they've decided that this artist is going to come to the label and they're going to have an opportunity to promote and market their music, that's usually where I get involved. But people give me music all the time. And if I, if I like it, if I think it's decent, I, 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 don't, I don't like to pass judgment. But if it's something that I hear that I think is competitive, I pass music along to our, our, my contemporaries in, at the label. Right. Now, you mentioned being on panels. Do you mentor any young musicians to help them along the way or... Is that just not really in your field of where you are right now? I mean, you only got so many hours in the day. I understand that. Yeah, it, it's funny. Um, mentoring is, is a passion of mine. I'm actually going into coaching. I have a foundation that I've been working on called Behind the Mic. Literally, I'm, there's two people that are helping me with it that are waiting on paperwork from me so I can get finished, get my 5013C certification. But the whole premise is there's five jobs in front of the mic. There's 500 jobs behind the mic. And so I really like to focus on people like myself who didn't know how to get into the business as an executive. And so if people have the the, the fortitude and the acumen, I, I like to talk and coach. What I've been doing recently, too, is just having kind of 30-minute coffees with people. Hey, you know what, Susan? You know, schedule with my assistant. Let's, let's talk on Tuesday. And you got 30 minutes to, to kind of pick my brain. Let's talk about it. What can I help you do? That's terrific. That really is terrific. Are there any funny stories that you can tell us in what you've done? I know you've managed groups, you've been with them on tour. I mean, I just am curious, do you have any that you can share without um, naming anybody, maybe in particular, but. The, the funny story I tell, because I'm a big Jay-Z fan, right? And friends of mine are friends of his and have come in contact with him years, you know, over the years, time and time again, really nice guy. Most embarrassing things probably happened to me was we were all in, in the office one day, and he was visiting my coworker, my boss at the time, who was, who was his friend. And he was like, "Yo, Zim, come in, come in the office. Say what's up to Ho." And I literally walked in, shook everybody's hand, and he looked at me like, "You're not gonna shake my hand." And so I went in to to give him a, a high five, and it was like, "You ever heard somebody have a hollow clap?" It was the most, it was the loudest clap. I've ever heard in my life. At least it sounded that way to me. And I was like, yeah, okay, so I'm going to leave now. So I was totally embarrassed. Fast forward a few years later, um, I'm working with him at, at Rock Nation and uh, just just a great guy. And just, you know, he, he was as advertised, you know, as far as what I'd seen from a bird's eye view before. And then working with him, you know, not every day, but working with him when I did come in contact with him. Just real down to earth, real chill. Didn't have any security stay downstairs or they had a place where they said, but he walked through the office freely. Nobody had to open the door. Hey, Mr. Carter's coming, none of that stuff. Um, so it was really nice working with him. That's great. That really is. It, you know, one thing I've really picked up on what you've said is for people that have a real passion for music, and it's I think it's like anything, you have to really love whatever it is that you're going into, if it's medicine or gardening or music, whatever it is. But I think you made such an a important point that it's not all being on stage singing are playing the music. There's so much more to it. And do yeah. you see that there's plenty of room for young people coming up that love music, but maybe they're just not lead singer material or whatever? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, you know, musicians, being a musician is a hard life. I mean, again, I, I did my five years of touring and sleeping in hotel rooms with three other people and cramped vehicles, whether it be tour buses or, or Lincoln Town cars. Mm-hmm. So that's a hard life. But there's plenty of opportunity in our business. Again, audio engineering. Uh, hell, if you want to be a lawyer. Uh, I know I have a friend that's actually a dentist to the stars. I have another friend that has a concierge um, medicine business. I have another friend who actually is a uh, is a trainer to some of the stars. Like, there's plenty of opportunities to work in our business and literally never touch the music, right? I have another friend who started. She she worked inside of our business in corporate travel. She wanted to open up her own travel agency, and she some of her clients are some of the biggest artists in the world. But those are just non-traditional jobs. And you talk about actually being inside the building, right? Marketing. We have a marketing department. We have an analytics department. Anybody out there who's really good with numbers and data analysis. Our digital marketing department, which people are really good with graphics and really just into the culture of the digital space. Fashion, styling, video directing. There's so many things you can do that don't involve being an artist that you know, it's really just about you being passionate about it. Mm-hmm. Yes, music is so important, as is other types of art, other fields yeah. of art. And I am always concerned when they go to look at a school budget and guess what's the first to cut? Right. Uh, I'm like, no, no, no. I mean, it's just such a part of, I don't know what to say. It just is so important to developing people fully and completely. That's- Absolutely. I know that's I am a product of having good music programs from elementary school all the way through high school, having that opportunity to be exposed. And I think that it's important that our young people at least have the access. You know, if they don't actually pursue it, it's fine. But I think up through middle school, there should be some type of music and arts curriculum so that they can have access to the opportunity to touch that part of their lives. Yeah, it helps your brain, it helps your soul, it helps all kinds of things. I think yeah. it's very, very important. Music calms the savage beasts, that's it. Isn't that the truth? <laughs> I mean, it, it, it truly does. So what keeps you motivated today in the business? What do you find exciting? Just being around, you know, the beauty of my job is that we get to see the artist day one, and then we get to see them on day 10, right? So. Day one is when they walk in and they're all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and they're looking around and the building looks so big and it's, it feels like there's a thousand people they have to meet and it's so overwhelming. And then when they become huge superstars and it's like, hey, Susan, can I get you to do this this interview? I have to do another interview. And then I talked to these people last year. So it's funny to watch the evolution. Um, and it's funny, like there there's some common things. You asked about the funny story. Every artist hates doing drops. I don't care who they are. Doesn't matter. They they now. What's a drop? So like a like. Hey, this is Azim Rashid, and you're on the Susan Supak podcast. Ah, okay. They okay. From the first day they get there, it doesn't matter. Day one or day ten, like doesn't matter. New artists, developed artists, they all hate doing drops and liners. They all hate going to do radio interviews early in the morning. So yeah, it's 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 a lot. It's crazy. That's why I made this one late in the afternoon for you. I'm fine. Listen, <laughs> I tell them all the time. I said, listen, guys. I'm up before you and I go to bed after you because my job is to get you to and from where you have to go safely and then plan the next day. So I'm usually up. I'm an early riser, but I'm excited just about the music. I get to be around the new artists, which keeps me young and fresh and hip and cool. 
I have a teenage daughter and two preteens, so yeah. you know, I wanna be the cool dad. So that helps me at least stay in, in the realm of cool. I mean I'd be cool, but I'm yeah. always around the cool. Right. And then also too, just because again, I love music. I love all kinds of music. So hip hop and R and B is what I was raised on, what I love the most. But you know, I'm a big pop music fan. I love going to live shows and concerts. And I just love being around it. So anytime I can learn something new, uh, anytime I can be around something that feels special and say, I remember I was there day one. It just is just it's gratifying. Yeah. Well, it's wonderful having an alumni like you from UNT because I think it helps. It's not only an interesting subject for our listeners to hear, but also it helps young people to understand what can happen as they develop themselves into their career. Yes. And did you find that UNT was helpful? I mean, I know you mentioned from the programming that you did there. Did you find that your experiences at UNT were helpful? You know what? Going to school and, and, and now having a daughter who's a freshman in high school thinking about her college career. Oh, and people say school doesn't for everybody. But I think that if you want to play in the big space, you have to learn how to deal with all kinds of people. And I, if I got anything out of my, my time in North Texas, it was that it taught me how to deal with all kinds of people. Like you mentioned me being the homecoming king um, at, a, at, a, at again, North Texas, which is a primarily white university. But that was a product of a, a group of organizations. We had um, what was called the Minority Caucus. And so all the black Greek letter organizations, we had the National Panhellenic Council, and then all the other organizations, GLAD, the Hispanic Student Association, um, Students Against Drunk Drive, like you, you name them, all the nine big Greek letter organizations came together to form the Minority Caucus. And so I wasn't the first. I think there were like five or six before me, minority students who had actually won Homecoming King and Queen. We pulled our resources together. And, and so that community got behind myself and, and my Homecoming Queen, her name is Aniqua Burks. They got behind us to make that happen. And so that taught me the power of A, diversity, B, community, but also two, the, the strength in numbers. Again, UPC was great. I was actually on the President's Advisory Council um, where we got to talk to, at the time, Chancellor Hurley and, and, and talk to him about our issues. Uh, I was president of my fraternity, Alpha Phi Fraternity Incorporated. Um, shout out HE. I was you know, president of the Progressive Black Student Organization. So I got a chance to really, as I say, go through school and get involved in a, in a lot of different things that... I feel now helped me be a leader as a team leader within my organization, but also too just helped me deal with the greater world. It probably not only helped you, but it probably made UNT a better place for people coming after you. I hope so. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised at all. Hey, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I really enjoyed today. I learned a lot and I appreciate you taking the time to talk with us, Azim. This has been fun. I really appreciate the opportunity. I want to give a special shout out to my good friend, Angela Ransom, who actually facilitated making this happen. And I just want to say to all the, the North Texas Eagle, Mean Green Eagles, keep soaring, keep flying. Myself and, and all the alumni, I, I, will, I think I can speak for them, are here for you, and we hope to see you all do great things. This has been Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas with music executive Azim Rashid. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please go back and listen to our previous interviews, which you can find on our website, olli.unt.edu slash podcast, or by searching for the Ollie at UNT podcast in your favorite podcast app. 
While you're in the app, don't forget to subscribe and give us a rating. We also encourage you to share our podcast with your family and friends. Join us again next week for another episode.